My name is Nancy Fulton, and I currently run events for 25,000 entertainment industry pros here in Southern California. And you can learn more about the work I do at nancyfultonmeetups.com. So today I'm interviewing Ben Yenny, founder of Gorilla Rep Media, which you can learn more about on thegorillarep.com. As founder and CEO of Gorilla Rep Media, Ben Yenny helps producers sell the rights to their films before, during, and after production. He's represented projects like Sacred Blood by Christopher Coppola and Black Gold starring Marvel's Luke Cage. He's attached well-known stars to projects, including Jodel Ferdlin of Twilight, Eclipse, and Claudia Christian of Babylon 5. He's author of The Gorilla Rep, American Film Market Distribution Success on No Budget, which is currently used as a textbook in film schools and is now available in Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and independent bookstores, as well as two other titles. He's been featured nationally in many places, including CNN Money, IndieWire, Indie Film Hustle, which is the number one filmmaking podcast on iTunes, as well as in Cinesource Magazine. He's also producer and an executive director of the Producer Foundry, and he served as an advisor to Film Angels and is the former chapter leader for the San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, and Vancouver chapters of the Institute for International Film Financing. Most recently, he has co-founded Production Net, a new set of tools and an ecosystem that helps filmmakers with scheduling, budgeting, shot listing, and connects the people involved in every stage of creating a film project. So, Ben, <laughs> that was kind of a long introduction, but do you want to spend a few minutes talking about how you became a producer's rep? Yeah. Well, I started as a producer, and I actually, when I went to film school, I wanted to be a writer-director, and then I realized I was a better producer, and then I moved out to California to uh, follow a girl, and I found out that I liked San Francisco better than I liked the girl, and then I started going to the American film market, and after a while of trying to produce my own films, I ended up uh, realizing that I was much better at distribution and finance than I was at the actual act of producing the film. So I re-specialized into being a producer's rep and executive producer. So it's interesting that you mentioned that as a producer's rep, you actually help people out with financing as well as um, um, distribution. Can you talk a little about um, all the aspects of filmmaking that you help producers out with and sort of when you like to be invited onto a project? Yeah. Uh, so I am very, very, very particular about what I do with financing. Um, it's very rare that I make uh, introductions to any of my angel contacts um, to uh, uh, by filmmakers. Generally, I have to have worked with you on a completed film before I start making those sorts of introductions because if I started throwing 25 filmmakers at these angel investors every week, they wouldn't, we wouldn't be friends for very long. Now, one exception to that is I do have some fee-based services which are more about packaging, business planning, and building proper uh, investment decks and things like that. Those are things that... I will do it in an early stage for basic for not anyone but for most people. But they are they do come with some not insubstantial fees for the work I'm doing. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that you will help a producer put together the package that they need um, in order to pitch a project in terms of the business plan and those and those kinds of resources. 
and you'll help them, you'll help them build their project so that it's it's pitchable and it's rational for an investor to put money into and you'll advise them on the process of pitching but you're not going to um connect people to your own uh finance sources unless and until you've worked with them on a completed film project that's gone well yeah i have to have a reason to vouch for you mm-hmm. and i have to be able to because these contacts a lot of them are also my friends so there's a certain level of i know this guy's good at what he does or this girl's good at what she does and i have to be able to say that definitively without any hesitation so that's why i have to have worked with you before and also through the process i mean the process of selling and marketing a film takes the better part of a year so you get to know somebody pretty well really nice when uh filmmakers start coming back to me with their next projects at an earlier stage and uh i actually want to work on them it's by far my favorite favorite client funnel so um yeah i think that answers your question yeah it does it totally makes sense and i think it is definitely the case that if somebody's a a filmmaker and they need they're putting together their project and then it's well built from the ground up they should have be able to find investors in it shouldn't be the case that they have to rely on third parties necessarily to find investors. If they've built their projects really well, they can develop those relationships. And I do think that it makes sense if you're a person who's bringing investment into a project that you need to know the person that you're working with well enough to be able to say, yeah, this guy can go the distance because it's not an insubstantial uh, putting together a film and actually distributing it's not an insubstantial process. It really is the case. You, somebody could be really good at designing the business plan or somebody could be really good at um, building the package or attaching the talent, and they could be really bad at the production or they could be really bad at um, creating the intellectual property, uh, the deliverables that have to go into distribution. You, you really have to be able to go all the way from the, t- the very start of the project to the very, very end of the project in order to be a good investment. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, the uh, so and the other side of my business is producers representation, and I've actually recently branched into direct U.S. distribution. So instead of uh, in the past, I've been working with direct U.S. distributors, and uh, over the next probably year or two, I'm going to be expanding my uh, direct U.S. distribution capabilities. There might be some outlets that I still work with a couple of the distributors I have a good working relationship with on, but I'll be taking more and more of it on myself, which actually ends up better for the filmmaker because mm-hmm. you're not paying somebody to get to the distributor anymore. So if, if we could step back and talk about um, what are the what does a producer's rep actually do and when do they usually actually come on board a project optimally? Do you want to come on when people have a script that's been fully vetted that you know they know um, covers well. Do you want to come on after they've gotten the the uh, first below the line budget from a line, you know, a bondable line producer, or do you want to come on board um, after they've already um, attached talent and they're now looking for, they're now starting to look for pre-sales so that they can find, um, they can use those minimum guarantees in order to raise money. So it depends on a couple of things. Um, the, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff I do is kind of low budget, like under 200, 250, that's not all of it, but a lot of it is. And the, um, and when you want to approach a producer's rep for something that's that low budget, uh, at that point you basically should have at very least a picture locked film, if not a completed, completed film. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might want to 
talk to the right producers reps before you even submit to film festivals mm-hmm. because good producers reps and good distributors have connections into the big film fest and they can actually make it more likely that you get it mm-hmm. as a story. Um, I can't say what film this was for, but I can tell the story that a um, one client uh, submitted to uh, Sundance in, mm-hmm. I think it was 2016. Um, and then they, uh, and they didn't get in. That's not a big surprise. Less than 1% of films get into Sundance. Anyway, uh, year rolls around. They do the festival circuit. They eventually talk to me. I eventually get the film in the hands of the of a sales agent. Actually, that was a pretty quick process. And then uh, the sales agent shows the same film, the exact same film, to a programmer friend at Sundance, and then gives me a call and says, "Why are you not submitted to Sundance? I talked to the programmer. If you were submitted, you'd be in." Mm-hmm. So. That's not uncommon. I mean, the way the reason that happens mm-hmm. is not just is not just that Sundance changes their taste slightly every year. That's part of it, but part of, but a bigger part of it is their submission processes. They basically have interns watch the film first, and their job is to call, mm-hmm. get rid of eighty percent of the films at least, and then get them up to the programmers to decide from those twenty percent uh, that remain. And more than likely, this film got cold um, in the 80% that go away. And then, so the reason I'm saying this is it, it doesn't hurt to have a, a producer's rep or a PMD on at an early stage because uh, they can help you. It may or may not, I mean, look, that, that, that Sundance story is an anomaly. That's mm-hmm. not something that's going to happen every single time. It's just not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a good producer's rep or PMD can actually help you make a better festival plan. That makes sense because you have the context to be able to get to sort of fast track things into, into, into certain hands. So I, I just want to sort of make sure that I understand. So you were talking previously about the fact that you can help people put together business plans and other docs that they would present to um, investors, which is something that usually happens before production. And then yes. um, so you also subsequently said that um, by the, for a project that's under $200,000, um, normally you're, you wouldn't bring a producer's rep on board until the picture had been locked and was actually, you know, it was complete and locked and um, was starting to look for distribution. Do you want to talk about? So yeah, there's a couple of there's a couple of different things here. I wear a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not just a straight producer's rep. A regular producer's rep, ninety percent of their business mm-hmm. is in uh, connecting filmmakers to distribution and negotiating distribution deals. That's the vast majority of their business. Um, I also have a producer of marketing and distribution services that I offer that are more consulting based. Mm-hmm. And the services that I offer as a PMD are earlier in the process. And that's most of what I do there. And that's in general executive producing services like business planning I put under the PMD label because I'm already wearing these hats and I don't need to add other hats to it. Um, 
the uh, so yeah, that's basically um, where I draw the line. I consider myself a straight producer's rep when I'm actually taking a film that's completed and getting it in the right hands. And basically anything beyond that, I consider part of my uh, producer of marketing and distribution uh, right. label. Right, so that makes sense. So it's so in, in one sense, you're acting as an executive producer of marketing and distribution, and that does come that does come on during uh, development and packaging, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, prior to funding, you're building you're building the the business the the business of the production company, um, so that you're creating the documents that get it funded, and you're making sure that it can go sort of soup to nuts um, through the entire process of of um, pre, of uh, casting, funding, pre-production, et cetera, all the way out to being released. And on the other hand, if somebody just has a finished film, then you'll come on as a producer's rep and you'll actually make it so that the film gets uh, as good a release as it can possibly get given what where it is at the point that you get it. Can you can you talk a little bit uh, talk about the difference between a producer's rep and a sales agent? Because I think a lot of times people think they're the same thing, and I'm not sure that they are. They are not the same thing. Um, they are very related, though. Um, so a producer's rep will often. So a lot of my job as a producer's rep is liaising with sales agents to get the filmmaker a better deal. Even though I'm taking a small percentage of the sales agency agreement, um, I put myself in line with the filmmaker. Um, so I'm not getting paid uh, before the filmmaker does or anything like that. Not all reps do. That is one thing you want to look for in a good rep um, because then my incentives are aligned to make sure you get, uh, you get the best possible deal that gets you paid as quickly as um, we can. So a lot of what I do is liaise to negotiate a better deal with a good sales agent and help you avoid dealing with some of the bad sales agents that won't even that even if you negotiate the heck out of a contract, um, you the sales agent won't live up to it. There are a lot of people who do that, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's mainly what a producer's rep does. A sales agent is more along the lines of directly selling to international buyers for localization. Mm-hmm. Um, and sales agent will sell the rest of the world. Uh, a lot of times as a producer's rep, I, hold, I think I've mentioned this, uh, I hold back North America and I work directly with buyers here and I'm expanding to actually just directly aggregate market and um, possibly even do limited theatricals. Um, right. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I I think um, the opportunity for doing uh, uh, you know platform theatrical releases is actually growing because I think theaters are having a harder time making ends meet, and and that opens up opportunities to set up you know you know to find yourself a collection of of uh, sixteen theaters that would like to have like a independent film series come through if the films are of a high quality. So it makes sense to be able to set up those kinds of relationships and particularly if you're representing lots of films because uh the having a theatrical release does increase the value of the film significantly and I think actually theater goers there are many theater goers that would like to see um non independent films as opposed to this kind of corporate corporate films that 
you know, how many times can you watch Spider-Man? I mean, actually, (laughs) (laughs) actually, and they keep remaking Spider-Man. Does it ever trip you out? You go, look, okay, I've seen the origin origin story for Spider-Man. What is it, four times? I mean, three times, four times? I'm pretty much done with that story. But yeah, I I am too. Also, it's... Speaking as somebody who actually does book theaters, um, I I think I can tell the story. I think we were actually public about it. I hope hope I'm not going to get myself in trouble, but I don't think I will. We were working on a uh, film called Goodland, and Mm -hmm. uh, it's just wrapping up its theatrical release as we're recording this. Um, And it uh, ended up doing, I think, around 16 markets, which is pretty good considering this film was under $200,000, which is... Mm -hmm. That's, that's really uncommon. Anyway, so uh, the uh, we were supposed to open in New York at the same time we opened in L.A., but Avengers overperformed and bumped us out. Wow. So even if you're uh, and this was three we, this was week three of the Avengers run that this happened. So um, it's we were only expecting like one showing a day, but they couldn't even spare the one showing a day anymore because Avengers was doing so well. Um, so that is a that can happen, and you can't really blame the theater owners for doing that. You just have to plan your release schedule around it because you're never going to be able to throw the marketing money, even close to the marketing money that Marvel can throw at it. Um, and just get the butts and seats that way. So you have to be smart about how you... So you can do multi-city theatrical runs, um, and you can't... But you have to be really careful about your marketing expenditures, and publicity is your best friend if you can get it. Right. Well, and so... um... I re- I strongly recommend that people when they when they uh, create their budgets and working with a line producer because I think line producers actually are a good reality check for a lot of producers. Um, you know, if somebody's produced like ten films at the you know two hundred to five hundred um, k level, they can look at a budget and look at your screenplay and go, <laughs> "This is okay." <laughs> In the real world, we pay actors, so I think we. <laughs> 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 and also crew. I don't know. And also, you're moving locations. I just want to point out that yeah. <laughs> there's a thing with that. You know, <laughs> you have to go from place to place. Like that's a thing. <laughs> like <laughs> there's setup time. I don't know. Maybe they didn't mention that. <laughs> but um, yeah. so those. So so. But I also tell people that the important thing is to make sure that the um, the budget. Uh, reflects marketing expenses, um, accurately reflects marketing and distribution expenses. Whether you're planning to do it, even there's sort of several different options. If you do, are planning to do a theatrical release, you know, kind of makes sense. Your marketing would start during pre-production, you know, so that in production, so as soon as you know you're going to have a film, you start the marketing because you would like to have a hundred, you know, a thousand, two thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> want to actually mm-hmm. film, film because that makes so you can so you can fill a few theaters and also makes your Rotten Tomato score go you know be good and makes your IMDb score be good because the first people that see it like it. And but in order mm-hmm. in order for all that to occur, you actually have to have a marketing budget that bears some kind of rational <laughs> relationship with the real world. 
And also, I think that it's, if you're going to do a theatrical release, that means that you're going to need to be able to, to send people to theaters in the towns or the locations. I mean, you may decide to work with independent theaters, you know, which may not be ever showing um, Avengers, which if you can find them. But the point is you still need to be able to, to drive people to those seats or there's no point in actually uh-huh. putting the film there. So the is is something that you help people do when they're in the budgeting stage of their project is um is that one of the things you can help them do is is consult with them on a fee for service basis or if they if you come on board as a um executive producer is that something you can help them do is actually create a rational um yeah that is plan. part of that is part of what we do um mm-hmm. a lot of times i mean i i i Definitely appreciate where you're coming from on that, and I agree, but a lot of times mm-hmm. I will actually keep it as a separate budget. It's not mm-hmm. tied into the production budget for mm-hmm. a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably, if, if, even if you have a $250,000 film, you probably want to go SAG because you mm-hmm. probably get a star in for even a day. It mm-hmm. really helps with the rest of the film. Yes. So, with the rest so you probably want to do that and if you have a marketing budget in your film that's already $250,000 and it pushes it to even $260,000 you just added a whole bunch of cast costs to your film mm-hmm. so it's a separate document and a lot of times I even keep it as a separate raise um, the, really? Uh, that's interesting so yeah. you're saying when you raise money from investors you you plan literally to have uh, two fundraising operations, one that you do um, to fund the production and then a, with the production budget that you've created, and then a second one just simply to raise the marketing uh, the marketing expenses. Yeah. So those are uh, – I do it that way for a couple reasons. The first is the SAG thing I just mentioned and the other Guild things. If you're looking at more like a $3 million film. Um mm-hmm. I would say uh, the the other reason is why do you want to hold a uh, significant portion of money for a year and a half before you're going to use it? Mm-hmm. I that's mean, true. yeah. So that's that's the big that's the big thing for me there. I am a big fan of the idea of staged financing mm-hmm. in independent film. Mm-hmm. There's no practical way to do it right now so the most i do is a pna raise later um mm-hmm. but and do, you, do you make it if, if you if this is sort of inside baseball but so mm-hmm. when you do that do you make it so that you're raising the funds you're creating two different classes of investors or are you allowing the second the second investors that come in to um basically participate at the same rate that you because and if you think about it, what you've really done is the people that came in when they were just doing the production costs, they were taking a bigger risk. When the oh, other yeah. guys come in, they usually you know you know that there's going to be a film because you've already covered the you've already covered the production costs, and these guys are just paying for the P and A. So in a way, they're they're kind of getting the marketing guys are getting the better deal. The guys coming in for the marketing are getting a better deal, a less risky deal, I should say. It is a less risky deal, um, especially since uh, sometimes, depending on what the uh, depending on the particulars of this raise, sometimes the P and A raise is done as debt. 
And then when? So um, that's not that's not the way I like to do it. I'd rather do it as equity, but sometimes, for expediency's sake, it makes sense to do it as debt. Um, and I don't. So that can get the early stage investors a little not gr in a worse position than they should be. That being said, um, normally when I normally the first people I I advise offering this deal to are the initial investors. So right. we so we say flat out when we when we're raising this initial round, um, this round is for the production of the film. We will be raising another round after the film is done. You will have first in opportunity. You will also get a discount at this round. Um, so, yeah, that's the best way I can say to do it, and the um, that is how uh, I generally advise clients to approach this, just because I think the only way you can create a sustainable film investor class is to have multiple staged investments from the same um, entity, whether it be in, whether it be a group of angels or something a little, or an executive producer who's working with a group of angels. You have to have the same people coming back because otherwise there's a massive disincentive to invest in early stage projects. Right. And right. that is the, uh, so I, I completely agree and I will flat out say that these are the tactics that I use right now and I think they're incomplete and I also don't think that they will solve the problem that desperately needs a solution. But I think there's, I don't think it's something that any one person can. Well, in a, in a sense, what you're basically doing is you're saying that the investors, when they first come in, you're you're letting them know that really you're kind of funding in tranches. You're saying mm -hmm. you're going to put you're going to you're, you're saying specifically this is the the first tranche tranche is going to pay the first set of money you give me the first tranche is going to be for this, and then I'm going to come back to you for the marketing money, and I can give you an idea of what that's going to be. But you just need to know that you're doing a two-part investment, and there's a reason for doing that. And it actually limits your risk. So what we're doing mm -hmm. is limiting your risk, you know. And if and we're also making it so your second your second investment is optional. If you don't like to look at the film after we've gotten it to the point where it's finished, um, when we come back to you for marketing money, you can say no. I'm going to stand pat with the risk I've already taken. If you decide that you do want to take an additional risk, then um, you'll have that opportunity. But um, but it, it you just you need to be, it's interesting because you're one of the first persons <laughs> so you're one of the first people I've heard actually say you know no you have to raise money for marketing and I keep running into people saying oh investors won't pay for marketing and I'm like well that's not true because that would be stupid <laughs> marketing is the money you can put in really. I know that's what I always say I go you know I would put in for marketing you bring me the film when it's finished and I know it's good. Yeah, you bring me big fat Greek wedding, right? <laughs> I will give you marketing money. Trust me, because I already know it's a good film. I can tell it's a good film. It's already gone through all the risks of production. That's where things get. That's where things are dangerous. Production is where people get their heads cut off. You got a finished film. Nobody got their heads cut off. It's good. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'll help you market it. That makes total sense. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and this is why uh, <laughs> I don't know why I get weird looks when I say this, but I do. So um, I think part of it is because I come from a technical environment, as I was mentioning before the call, and I think you do too. You like you're hanging out up in, in San Francisco, and I think there's a different um, there's a different 
that's a tech thinking, right? Because techs think that way about apps as well, right? They think exactly the same thing. The first money that you get is going to be for producing the for for um, producing the pro, um, first. You have to prove traction, but for, then you're going to get the money for to actually create that killer app, and then after that, you're going to get growth capital. So, so if you really think about it, distribution money and marketing money is growth capital, right? That's where we go find customers. <laughs> Given that you've got a film, now we're going to go find customers for it. But it, I think it's specifically a, it's a tech way of thinking about things as opposed to a, a really, you know, 1980s traditional way. Because in the 1980s, mm-hmm. you didn't have to go out for that because you would just sell your film to a distributor and it would have a marketing budget for it. You yeah. Know? And that's not the case anymore. We don't have VHS, which was just flush with cash. Um, that's why distribution deals have gone down the toilet. In mm-hmm. terms of your MGs, um, mm-hmm. physical media it has done the same, mm-hmm. and physical media was the real cash cow for most distributors. And you have to figure out alternative models now. And a lot of sales agencies and distributors are not adapting as quickly as they need to. There are some. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some, and those are the ones that I try to deal with. But if you don't, but you have to look at physical media as essentially ancillary revenue. You, the only place you really make money are from your uh, t are from your. Uh, if you have a theatrical, you can make a bit of money, but with after theatrical splits and rub shares and all of that, you don't make much. Um, and the uh, you, but you can actually make a little bit of money. But the big thing that the theatrical does is make your TVOD revenue much better. And mm-hmm. I your listeners know what TVOD is? Um, yeah, actually, um, uh, you, you can go ahead and explain it as well, but we, um, there, my listeners, we actually, I recommend people um, work with uh, distributor.com and with um, rightstrade.com, both of which have, um, so if you don't have a sales rep and you don't have a, uh, you don't have a, you know, and you know your film's actually not going to do overseas sales, or you're you're going to try to do those sales directly. I can tell I can tell people to go check a look, take a look at RightsTrade.com, which um, will give you access to those um, overseas buyers. Um, and it, it's it's basically a platform. It's like LinkedIn. It has all the contact information. You can send secure screeners, and it's got a little deal negotiating widget inside the app. Inside the mm-hmm. the platform, and they're you know they're nice people. It doesn't necessarily mean you have the skill to negotiate a good deal, but it gives you access to the to the market, which is one of the reasons that um you know you're an, you're a great person to talk to because people because you can help people actually negotiate good deals, and then distributor lets you get into Netflix and Hulu and those kinds of things. They're um they uh, and you get to keep 100 percent of the revenue that's generated. So you pay the, there is it's a fee for service deal. So um. People understand the uh, most people that are listening to my calls understand about um, uh, uh, video on demand distribution, pay per view, et cetera. But they uh, may not understand the relationship between um, having a, the- a small theatrical release and all the different uh, how that how that bumps up significantly the amount that you earn from. Mm-hmm. Um, TVOD and um, AVOD, et cetera. So do you want to talk for a little bit about what the, what sort of that percentage of difference might be? Uh, I am hesitant to put down an exact percentage mm-hmm. because it varies greatly depending on mm-hmm. a lot of different factors. 
but I will say that a relatively conservative conservative estimate is 50 to 100% extra. Really? Uh, so, yeah. You're um, kidding. Rel- so that's it. So that's is that normal that's an incredible um that's an incredible. So like just even a 16 uh a 16 city one week run. That's assuming you're doing at least seven or ten markets for a solid week. And the reason I say, and the big reason that this happens, and most of the extra money comes from uh, two places. The mm-hmm. first place is uh, cable VOD, mm-hmm. uh, cable VOD, and mm-hmm. the uh, you get put in a higher bracket if you've wow. done this theatrical. And the same happens with ISIS. The big thing is it's 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 a separator. You end wow. up at a you end up at a much higher visibility level, which makes um, a lot of things easier to convert. The other thing that you have to con- that it does is it raises the o- it raises the overall visibility of your project enough that if it's high enough quality, you might start to get people like Amazon or Netflix or other people or even Showtime offering you a better exclusive deal. Really? And so, yeah, I don't think I'm allowed. I don't know if I'm exactly. I, I've seen some deals that I probably can't share particulars of, mm-hmm. but um, there have been times that we've been offered those sorts of deals and seriously had to consider them. And sometimes, like on the Amazon, I mean, I assume you guys know how Amazon works. Yeah, um, well, you can go ahead and review yeah. it, but yeah, it's, I think. Okay, but the uh, so Amazon uh, basically, you get six cents per hour viewed is the mm-hmm. standard deal, and you basically have to market it a lot to get mm-hmm. up, to get it up, and uh, into their algorithm so that it actually starts generating views on its own. If you can get into their algorithm. You can make a hundred thousand dollars a year just mm-hmm. from Amazon if you can get into their algorithm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're if you made the film for less than two hundred thousand dollars, that's not bad. So, um, you, by by which you mean getting into their algorithm? You mean that if um, I can drive, uh, I'm just going to use random numbers. If I can drive a hundred thousand users to the film um, on a particular day through my marketing efforts. And they each watch. Um, they each watch the whole film, or they watch, you know, five minutes or ten minutes, so that the, uh, so that Amazon's computers so recognize. The higher the, the higher the percentage of the film they watch, the more uh, Amazon takes as a recommendation. So if you get your film on Amazon, your first job is to get as many as your friends as possible to watch it and rate it five stars. Like really bother your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I. I I'm branching the U.S. distribution, so my friends are going to be sick of me bothering them to do this. <laughs> but the uh, um, but it makes a big difference. I think uh, this is I, I do not have data to back this up, so mm-hmm. I might be way off. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just general trends I've noticed from looking at Amazon sales sheets and revenue coming back. Well, no, um, I know for a fa- I know I know for a fact that it does because when you go onto Amazon, it actually has the what's basically a what's trending thing, and that what's trending thing is what's getting the traffic. So if you want your film to get onto that, you know, appear in that what's trending thing, where a lot of people, you know, it appears very high in the listing when you go to Amazon. That if you want it to appear there, the only thing that's going to put it there is a whole bunch of people watching it and raking it highly. 
And so you have to, you, it, it, which means that when you're doing a marketing spend, you have to be really smart. Because you have to, you have to not just put the marketing so it drives people to Amazon, but you have to try to get those people there on a specific day because you want it to be in the top ten. You want it to, you know, oh, you yeah. want it to hit you high. You really do. Um, so the so that's one thing there. Um, and what I was going to say is this not this exact number I'm about to say might not be accurate, mm-hmm. but from what I've seen from sales sheets and a couple of other things, if you actually watch it. Uh, if somebody actually watches the film all the way through mm-hmm. um, and uh, gives it a five, and gives it a five star rating after watching it, Amazon may well show the film through various recommendation systems uh, to up to a hundred other people. Wow! And that so you have to do it. Um, you really, really do. Mm-hmm. And again, show that doesn't mean all one hundred of those people are going to watch it. That just mm-hmm. means that it will be shown about mm-hmm. that number. And again, I haven't seen internal Amazon data or anything on that, so I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. But the uh, but that is about the but given what I've seen from ratings numbers and revenue numbers from various films that I've read, that seems loosely correct. Mm-hmm. Um, no. So yeah. And is the same true for is the same true for the way iTunes puts puts things on its like what's hot list or whatever or it's Amazon is or iTunes is if I understand it is mainly based on sales and if you mm-hmm. can drive sales for iTunes the day it drops and like get a thousand people to buy it uh, and if you you drop it on a Wednesday or a not normal day and you get a and you get even a couple hundred people to buy it the day it comes out. You can end up in the Amazon top or the iTunes top three if yeah. you do it on a day. If you're strategic about when you release it, and uh, I talked to Jason Brubaker uh, mm-hmm. about this. I was actually on a panel with him at mm-hmm. USC. Right. Uh, the uh, and he said that he's actually seen people do exactly that with iTunes. Mm-hmm. So um, that is another way to go. Basically, you want to get in these high placements because that's how you get the visibility and that's how you get the eye, the eyeballs on your film. And that's the only effective way to market it. So um, another thing is if you do this theatrical number release, first of all, you get automatically in higher tiers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do the theatrical release and you have a theatrical release planned or you're doing it with a distributor, um, you should reach out to the iTunes trailers people as soon as possible because the only time that you end up on iTunes trailers Mm-hmm. if you're doing a theatrical and planning on releasing on iTunes. Wow. Um, so that's the only time. So you get a lot of extra visibility by doing that. So, so, when, um, so when you're working with people, when you're working with people and they come and they want to hire you as a, as um, um, an executive producer for marketing and um, distribution, one of the things that you can work with them on is developing the a strategy or when to how to start gathering up their audience. So you have the thousand names or the ten thousand names you need in order to drive people to this particular film when it actually releases, and then also mm-hmm. to help them do the uh, also to ha- help them do the execution correctly. Like you said, making it so that making it so that you do pay for the release and that you let mm-hmm. the iTunes people know at the right time, so they'll go ahead and they'll say, okay, they're doing a theatrical release, so we'll put the trailers on iTunes and let people know that it's coming soon so that you get a bump in a lot of people that are watching other films will hear about your film. 
and then mm-hmm. making it so you make the expenditure, you, you send the mail out to everybody and saying, hey, the film's available, watch it in the next 24 hours, so that people will actually go and watch it in the next 24 hours so that you get the bump from being in the listed in the top three on iTunes, and then executing the same strategy for Amazon. Like, mm-hmm. you actually help people, because that's like a huge job right there, <laughs> like actually yeah, managing a, uh, that marketing. There are, um, so the thing I offered in an earlier stage is more mm-hmm. of the setup and less of the management. I do mm-hmm. offer some management services on that, but mm-hmm. they're relatively expensive, and a lot of what it is is me uh, hiring somebody to do a lot of like your social media management to make sure that it's actually mm-hmm. fed and that you can keep building on that through various mm-hmm. apps and things. Because um, if you had me do it, you'd be paying way more than the job is worth. So it makes more sense for me to for me to set it up, oversee it, and have somebody else actually execute it because social media is very time intensive. So um, with the distribution company that you're setting up, are you going to make it so that you actually are doing? Um, so if you were if you were a distributor in theory you would have mm-hmm. the ability to instead of your producers that you choose to distribute might give you a P&A fund you might say well in order for me to distribute your film you know there's going to be a $10,000 P&A or whatever and then you might decide to spend that 10,000 to to um market their film and you would end up with a collection of email addresses that like that kind that collection of film is it the case that you could gather up that you can gather up those people in order to promote to become part of a database that you market every new film that you release to so that in the long run everybody benefits from everybody who works with you benefits from the fact that you're you're capturing these names and contact information for people that want to watch these watch new releases on the day that they come out, or want to be able to go to, to uh, theatrical, you know, special mm-hmm. theatrical releases. So yeah, no, that is definitely something that I am mm-hmm. working on. It's not as fully executed as I w- might like it to be, but I am building my email list and also a lot of the services that I offer at an early stage for marketing plans on a consulting basis are actually helping you build your email list right. because it, it helps, sure, it helps if your distributor has an email list as well and right. I practice what I preach, I'm doing that. Right. But it doesn't help as much if uh, you're a... It doesn't help as much if you don't have one as well. And that's part of what I set up at an early stage, and that's part of what those uh, social media campaigns I was talking about are. The real goal of that is to capture email. Um, well, I think it's, I think there's two different there's two different things. I definitely think for a filmmaker, a filmmaker has to develop their own list. But the problem is, they're only ever going to come out with most of us are only going to come out with a film every two or three years, and that's if God smiles on us, right? I mean, because it's you know it's hard. It's it's a it's a grind. Whereas a distributor who's putting out a new film every two or three months, they have a capacity to create a better list. It's kind of, in a sense, it becomes a communal property in the sense, mm-hmm. especially if you're always distributing the same kind of films. If you're if your distribution company focuses on thrillers, okay, well mm-hmm. then you become the thriller guy, and you have or you have the thriller yeah. list, you know. Oh yeah, there's definitely some level of that that's going on with me. The big thing, uh, most mm-hmm. of what I do is it actually is thrillers. But the um, I'm also branching a little bit out into family because it's mm-hmm. the content that's coming across my desk. 
Well, and also um, families, family is actually really good business, especially, you know, G-rated family um, and yeah. then faith-based family, which is like a really, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, heading into white elephant territory, but faith-based family, they're des- those folks are desperate. That particular market is desperate for content, and they do tend to watch things three or four times. And so mm-hmm. if you can find content, they and they also tend to be the kind of people who share films that they like within their community. So it tends to be the kind of thing... So I understand. Oh, so faith-based is, it, yeah. uh, is great because not only can you share it, you can do a marketing campaign to churches and right. uh, actually try to do screenings there. And that's actually a really easy, uh, it's a, as far as marketing community screenings, which is something of a thing I do, it's not mm-hmm. actually on my rate sheet. The other stuff we've talked about is mm-hmm. in are directly on my rate sheet. So if you actually... Uh, mm-hmm. If I do a bid for you, you'll see it there. I do community screening marketing as well, but I'm very selective about it, and I basically develop a plan for each individual one because it's so separate, yeah. and the lead gen can be so hard. Mm-hmm. But churches are great because they're really easy, and they close at a really high percent. So yeah. um, that's the uh, – so I would say – so if you have a faith-based film – um, and you're open to a distributor who's not a person of faith helping you to helping you distribute mm-hmm. it. I am more than happy to do that. But um, it is. But I also understand a lot of that market wants uh, people of faith to be doing that. And it's interesting. It, yeah. I knew a. I knew um, one of my weird um, adventures in Hollywood is. Um, I. <laughs> so I don't know if you ever knew, but there's a guy called Gary Shusette who ran this bizarre film school. <laughs> anyway, one of the things he did is like he would just take you from studio to studio to studio and you would meet people and they would talk to you for an hour. And I went on this one for executive producers and I met the guy that did the Passion of the Christ um, church campaign. Like he designed it from the ground up. And he said, and it just exactly as you described, he said it was like it was the, it was, it it worked incredibly well. Like, that's why we were so successful. We made lots and lots of money on that because we literally would just take call-up churches and say, hey, we have this film, and it accurately depicts, the, you know, the Passion of the Christ, you know, da-da-da, and they would bring us in, and then we would do the show, and it would be a sold-out, you know, we'd have, like, they'd be in church, and they'd be watching it. There'd be 800 pe- people in the audience, and they would have all paid to see, the, like, it was, re- and then we'd, they'd want it to come back to their town to see in the in the theater. So it's a, so that kind of marketing design that's specific to the film can be incredibly profitable because specifically mm-hmm. because um, specifically because it is targeted at the specific the specific market and what that specific market wants and a lot of the I think a lot of the biggest successes in film have come from that kind of tightly targeted tightly targeted marketing oh I completely if, agree niche marketing is more important now than it ever has been. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that all we're talking about here are different sorts of niches that yeah. are relevant. That have some of which have better systems that you can access them through. Um, basically, I I know some of the uh, biggest uh, LGBT distributors personally, and mm-hmm. like one of them, one of them is a good enough friend at this point. I'm not going to name him, but. Mm-hmm. I was meeting him by the pool at AFM. He was the first buyer I ever met. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, like, six years later, I had my assistant with me. 
And she and she's like, oh, I remember this guy. When I first met him, I met him by the pool. He was so young. He still had water rings on. Aw. And it's just <laughs> a uh, – and so he's embarrassing me in front of my assistant just for funsies. And mm-hmm. um, I – that's just kind of the sort of relationship I have with him. And he is one of the world's biggest LGBT distributors. Um, it's not all he does, but it is mm-hmm. a thing. And um, also, I'll finish this story, but then I have to come back to a tangent on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, so basically, I love it when uh, I get LGBT films because I can just say, "Hey, person, who I'm not naming, mm-hmm. um, watch watch this film if you like it." It's, as far as I'm concerned, it's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I, it's actually generally a pretty good deal for me. But anyway, the big reason that, so the tangent I was going to go on is this is why you actually pay a producer's rep or a sales agent. Mm-hmm. This is not a, those sorts of weird, funky relationships that result from spending time in markets. That's how you get business done in this yes. realm. And the, uh, and the reason you want to give somebody like a producer's rep or a sales agent or sometimes both a percentage of your film is that they'll know exactly how they can – who to sell it to and how they can sell it to them. Right. And that's not something that you can do without spending years going to these markets. Well, and so, I, it's it, – so I, my um... – I have a degree in economics from UCLA, and I've spent a number of years working to teach uh, teaching people how to start businesses, um, like eight years um, mentoring uh, entrepreneurs of a wide variety of kinds um, for a school for startups, and the and building mentoring programs and creating curriculum. And what's interesting to me is if you really think about it from a market perspective, a, a producer's rep. Or a distributor, which or a person, um, a company that does distribution, which is one of the things um, uh, you talked about how you're evolving into for good reason. It is there's a certain set of assets that have to be acquired. One is a list of people that a, a list of people that you can distribute stuff to, and the knowledge of exactly what they want based upon the resources and context that they have and where they're pushing content to. That it's it's the under the, it's knowing what that market a particular distributor wants or a particular set of distributor wants, and then also it's creating this database of names. You know, these are the people <laughs> I have in my in my hand. <laughs> a hundred thousand people who like thrillers, and they like the kind of thrillers that I like. And I can get um, on any given Sunday, I can get twenty uh, percent of this list to go on to Amazon or to iTunes to watch a film. So <laughs> now this this thing I have because I'm constantly pushing content to them. And they know that when I send out an email, it is something that they want to see, and they do want to go watch it the first day because it's something I know what they like, and I give them what they want. And so creating that asset doesn't make sense for an individual film. It's just it's creating mm-hmm. both of those assets is not a financially sane thing for any filmmaker to do because you're not going to be able to push out enough content to those people to be able to get a return on the investment that you're making. If if you're If, if you're only, you know... <laughs> There's a limit to how many 
people, how much time you can spend wandering around film festivals and talking to people. And also, the, the distributors don't want to talk to you because you don't actually even have a film to give them. Like, why am I talking to you? You have exactly one film. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about your one film, right? And I certainly don't want to talk about it two years later, you know? So it's like, unless you've got one of the things you as a distributor have or as a producer's rep have or as an executive producer working across multiple films is you say I have a collection of content and so it does behoove these people to talk to you because they want to because you you are feeding them a stream of content and also it makes sense for you to create the assets in terms of the people that will go watch the films on the first day um, when it's on iTunes and it does make sense for you to it makes rational sense for you to um, gather up this paying market and it, it, because you can actually exploit it by actually pushing content to them. So unless a filmmaker wants to become a producer's rep or wants to somehow magically figure out how he's going to produce, you know, two or three films a year or four films a year, you know, you're ne- it's a necessary thing for you to exist. Does that make sense? Like, th- that's, yeah. You're paying for something for a reason. Yeah, no, that makes total sense, and I'm glad to hear somebody who's not me say it. Um, but the, uh, but no, that's, that's, yeah, that, that was actually very well put. Well, I think a lot of times people don't understand why am I paying this guy, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's like, you're paying this guy because you don't have enough, you're not pushing, he has access to an audience you can't get and you couldn't get it even if you spent a lot of money getting it. You'd have to spend a lot of money and have a lot of films too. Because mm-hmm. that's not, it's not, you're not, you personally, when you go and you talk to distributors, you're not buying their attention by saying, I'm going to pay you cash. You're, sell, you're telling them, I have a film for you. I have like several films for you. And I'm going to bring mm-hmm. you more good films. And that and they need those. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that's the uh, big thing there. It's just, you don't, there's a reason that I'm not a filmmaker as mm-hmm. well. Because, Everything that I do takes all the time I have. Yes. And I don't think most filmmakers want to do what I do. Mm-hmm. And not by not doing what I do, um, you enable yourself to do what you're better at and actually make good films. Mm-hmm. And I just help you actually get out there and make it. Filmmaking, get out there and monetize it. Filmmaking mm-hmm. is a collaborative art. And mm-hmm. if you and it requires a lot of different people and a lot of different skill sets. And one of the skill sets that you need is marketing and another is distribution. And they're not necessarily the same, although they're mm-hmm. very related. Um, the, uh, so, yeah. Is there, uh, um, so is there a way, I guess I had a couple more questions. Um, one is if people want to reach out to you, just uh, if people want to reach out to you um, via email um, or through your website, can they? Uh, so I have to tell you, <laughs> when I'm when I'm creating projects, I'm big on the research part, right? So in other words, like consulting with people is important to me. So if I was at the business plan stage and I wanted to have to understand marketing, I might well reach out to you and go, you know, can I pay you a few hundred dollars an hour for a few hours of consulting so I can say this is what I'm planning to do? Tell me what's stupid. So I can fix it. Like if I'm underestimated, if I've underestimated something, or if you re- if you've read through the script and you go, you know, here's the thing about this screenplay. What the hell is it? You know, like I don't. You're saying it's a thriller, 
but it doesn't look like a thriller. <laughs> I can tell because it is not thrilling. <laughs> now, it is other things which might be very good, but it's not going to make the thriller people happy <laughs> because mm-hmm. it is in no sense a thriller, right? I mean, I don't know if you've had that experience where Plumby says this is this is a thriller or this is a horror story or this is a you know a, a buddy film or whatever, and you read it and you go no, <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it's not because <laughs> so, I've read those before. <laughs> Are you available for that kind of consulting on a on an ad hoc basis from time to time, or is it something that it's like? you wouldn't necessarily um the reason I'm asking is because I think some people may want to reach out to you very early in the process when they're building and then other people may want to engage you um or to, or at that point they may want to engage you before they're at a point where you would even consider taking them on as a client as a as yeah. an executive producer I actually had somebody uh email me out of the blue just because they like my blogs and my writing and all of mm-hmm. that and asked for two hours of my time mm-hmm. and I gave him my rate and mm-hmm. uh he PayPal'd it to me and then we talked the next and then we talked about three days later. All right, cool. So, so yeah, that's so, it's totally something I do. All right, um, cool. And yeah, then and then and then if not maybe you could write if if you reach out and you're not you're busy and there's nobody good you can say, Well, look, I can't talk to you but if here's somebody you can talk to that I think would be can provide the solution that you're you're looking for. Like you know, though they can they have a moment to read your screenplay and to give you notes about whether or not it fits inside the fits inside the um, the market. Like whether or not like whether or not it's aiming for the correct market based upon what the film is and based upon what kind of markets actually make money. You know, I might have somebody for that. Um, like I, if you want a referral to. Uh, if you want a referral to somebody who can read your script and tell you whether it's on budget or not, I definitely have somebody for that. I'm mm-hmm. good friends with the UPM of uh, Blue Jasmine, mm-hmm. um, and she does that. Um, mm-hmm. If you want somebody to read your uh, script... From a marketing uh, standpoint. See, I, I really think that a lot of yeah. times when I read, when people give notes... So I routinely tell people how to get professional coverage. And, and professional coverage can tell you, like, you know, your script doesn't make sense or your pacing's all screwed up. Like, that's a different concept. Mm-hmm. Marketing coverage is a different thing. Marketing coverage yeah. says, this is not a thriller. Like, or I don't know how many people, okay. Yeah, I have something <laughs> to fam- What you have here is a family-friendly thrill, a family friendly, um, gory horror film. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where this is. Go- I don't know how you're going to shoot this thing such it's such that it is family friendly and also a gory horror film. So I don't know if you can pull it off. I don't. I need to see some art because so, I don't know okay. who, who are you selling this thing to? So, so, so that actually brings up a really good point. There are a lot of people who approach me with cross genre films, thinking that it's going to expand the market. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, a family-friendly gory horror film does not appeal to both family people who want family-friendly movies and people who want right. uh, right. gory. You have to like both, and that's right. weird. Exactly. People yeah. don't like. It's like those people are not good people. It's like, and I know there's like I can give you a list of I can I can give you a list. Like, no, this is a film where we torture children. No. No. That's not a good show. People don't like it. It makes them dusty. <laughs> wait, wait. Where does the Goonies fall into that? That's why. But I mean, the Goonies was an interesting thing because, it, although it was, it, it, my only point is that there's people try to break the genre a lot of times where they go, you know, we're gonna do a, uh, we're gonna do 
spy thriller, right? But we're going to turn it on its ear and we're going to make it, uh, you know, we're going to pick like a really unlikely, uncharismatic spy. <laughs> You're like, okay, but here's the thing. <laughs> I want a spy thriller where the killer is cool <laughs> because yeah. that's what I like about spy thrillers is the killer is cool. <laughs> like this thing you're doing is confusing. <laughs> it's, I don't know. And I know maybe it'll work. I don't know. <laughs> but you got to prove it to me because it seems unlikely. <laughs> so I guess my point is like your mar- I think your marketing expertise is is advantageous because you have a sense of what the market likes. And how and also that feeds into how it is marketed. It feeds into what the cover looks like. It feeds into what the trailer looks like. No, you're totally right, and it also feeds into how you should be engaging with your audience from day one. There is and it may and very, very well impact casting. And actually, it's another thing yeah. you mentioned that you do is you help people actually pick out casting. And casting and genre are a, are a huge issue. People, I think a lot of times people don't understand that. That the, if you're doing a spy thriller and you want, good, you want a, a name, a name to that target market is a different name mm-hmm. than if you're doing a family-friendly film. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I would normally agree with you, but I actually really liked Get Smart, and I didn't think you <laughs> could be a spy. So, um, okay, you got you got points. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Every so often, some some people some people can pull it off. Some actors <laughs> just are really talented moving things across genre. But yeah, I I definitely do that sort of consulting. Uh, I cool. am dyslexic. Uh, so I'm really slow at reading scripts. So normally uh, you're better off. So if you actually want me to read your script and give you marketing coverage, I may refer you to a friend of mine who does so if that. If they were to send you a, if they were to send you a table reading where they it was like an hour long edited table reading, would that work better for you? Yeah, that would work. That would work better for me. Um, okay. It's just a. Uh, it, it, I only read about stuff as I talk, and right. uh, that's a. So it takes me significantly longer than you probably want to pay me hourly to give you marketing coverage on your script. So, um, because my hourly rate is reasonable, but not inexpensive. No, Um, and I I think it makes so sense. I actually kind of think it makes sense for people to do a table reading anyway, and what the hell, you might as well record it. I mean, mm -hmm. part of it is just most people don't have, most people do not have the time or interest in reading a script. And also, I think it plays different when it's read versus when it's heard. Mm-hmm. Right, I think it, I think it. There's a different. You actually get a much better sense of the pacing when something mm-hmm. is read, you know, and and you get much better sense of the surprises. Like with something supposed to be surprising, sometimes surprises don't surprises don't come across in a read because people have decided to skip some lines. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I didn't actually read that part of the script because it was like in a long text passage, and I don't read those. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> you, you kind of need that for this particular. The best way to find me there is just uh, I have both a contact form on my website and I also have a way to get to my direct email that nobody ever uses, even though it's literally on every page of my website. (laughs) Um, And if you use it, I'll actually be impressed because I'm always kind of confused as to why nobody does. Now you can find my phone number on LinkedIn, but you can't do the actual other thing. I shouldn't have said that. Actually, we might want to do that. Totally, I totally get that. It's just I get mystified. I go, why wouldn't you just, there's like, <laughs> like, why wouldn't you just send me an email? Because people sometimes send me, like, call me, and I want to go, it's just complex. The whole calling thing. You realize it's, like, it's better. Email's good. <laughs> I can send you links in email. When you call me, mm-hmm. how's that going to work, really? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I agree. There, there are times when a call is warranted. 
Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, the introduction is not that. But if you're actually <laughs> if if you're actually asking me to do a pricing plan for you, I'm gonna need to call you because yeah. I I need to. I need a lot more information to do this well. Are there any warning signs you would recommend that people watch out for when they're engaging a sales agent, an executive producer, or um, a producer's rep? For a sales agency, if they're if they're asking for more than a thir- for more than a thirty five percent commission or more than fifty thousand in recoupable expenses, just walk. Don't don't bother negotiating it. Just walk. Mm-hmm. Unless that is if you're doing a small film, if it's a if it's a sales agent slash distributor who's actually going to give you a theatrical run, that might cost a couple of million. That's not unreasonable, but you're going to have to have like a $10 million feature to make that make sense. Mm-hmm. So, but generally, if you're talking about a small film, a million or less, if the sales agent is asking for more than 35000 in recoupable, sorry, a 35% commission or 50000 in recoupable expenses, you're going to have to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for the sales agent. It's the best red flag I can give you. Uh, regarding a producer's rep, um, if all they're doing is brokering, I know a lot mm-hmm. of what we talk about are actually developing marketing plans and other sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but every one of my plans here, you actually you know exactly what you're paying for. And mm-hmm. you get, in general, you get at least milestones, if not an actual document out of the entire thing on that. So there's mm-hmm. a there's there's there are actual deliverables that come along with anything that you pay me uh as either part of a payment plan or paying up front for. Those are all very clear. Mm-hmm. Um if a producer's rep is asking for money up front just to broker the film. Mm-hmm. No, you don't, don't. If they're just brokering and introducing you to sales agents, they should be working on percentage. Generally, the fair percentage for that is between ten is between five and fifteen percent. Five is five. I would only work for if we've worked in the past, and it's generally a good friend rate. Um, ten is about average, and fifteen mm-hmm. is kind of on the high end. How mm-hmm. if you get a producer's rep who is looking to? Uh, for anything more than 15% for negotiating with sales agents. I actually tur- I charge 10% for negotiating with sales agents, and I actually charge 18% for uh, liaising with directly with U.S. distributors because I cut the sales agent out on that. You mm-hmm. still end up paying mm-hmm. less. However, as I've said before, I'm actually moving directly into U.S. distribution, so that fee structure is subject to change, possibly before this even comes out. So when you're working as a distributor in that particular case, you may give the, you may have a P&A fund that you um, you want people to put in, but you Actually, would not charge them for you wouldn't charge them for the distribution because distributors are supposed to pay you, not the other way around. Yeah, <laughs> is that so how that works? Like, or? That would essentially be it. And also, depending on the size of the film, there's a good chance I wouldn't ask you to put in for P&A. I'd just have a recoupable expense. I'm building that. I, I just actually wrote that part of the contract. And it's uh, what I'm looking at charging is around five thousand for U.S. distribution. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm aggregating, if I actually make a sale to uh, to a pay TV channel or Netflix or anything like that, mm-hmm. I'll add an additional two on that just because that Im- that implies that I spent money at markets to make mm-hmm. that sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the uh, other one is I might add additional three part for time, but also additional marketing. Um, right. 
uh, for a theatrical run. And right, so, if you're supporting a theatrical run is a whole different thing because yeah. there's a lot of so that, that. That's like finding theaters that want to show your film and will actually have an audience that might actually want to go see the darn thing. Yeah, so that's that's a different. So yeah, like all of that. So, but I'm trying to keep even with a the theatrical at least to start. We'll see how long that lasts uh, mm-hmm. to a cap of about ten thousand and mm-hmm. recoupable expenses, and that's money and time I put in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a in most distributors, you kind of want your distributor to have some skin in the game. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically where that is going. If I were to ask for any, uh, mm-hmm. I have contacts at Landmark and AMC. If you want mm-hmm. to just do it a quick way, we're going to have to talk about doing a joint raise to mm-hmm. pay for theater rentals because that's how mm-hmm. that works. Um, that makes sense. So that's a, um, so those are the sorts of things that I would do there. Uh, going back to the producer's rep, there's one story I heard of a producer's rep asking for 5000 upfront and 35% of any deals they got, if they got it, and they weren't going to negotiate the deals. Wow. I negotiate the hell out of my deals. <laughs> I negotiate it to the absolute most I could do without losing a contact, like basically <laughs> a single time. Um, and that is, and I also only deal with people who actually live up to their contracts. Mm-hmm. So this guy was just going to basically introduce you to whoever and charge $5,000 and take most of your revenue. So wow. so don't work with that guy. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, and then distributors, you probably aren't going to deal directly with distributors yourself. They want to deal with people like me. Um, mm-hmm. Or uh, they want to deal with people like me or a sales agent. So how should people reach you? Should they go through thegorillarep.com? Yeah, um, if you want me to consider your film or if you need any of the services we've talked about here, uh, com slash submit uh, will take you to a form that only I have access to. And uh, that will be the easiest uh, way for me to review. Um, and once that's, and uh, if you want to reach out to me about anything else, uh, there's a contact form on the site or there's that super mysterious way to find my email, which is on literally every page of my website, which you should be able to find. Um, so, yeah. That's uh, so funny. But you've hidden it there on your site, so. I know. I've I don't know. In, I've hidden it in the header of my site. It's so unfunny. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. That is, I, like, I have that. I have totally that feeling, too. Like, a million. It's like, well, never mind. I could put the cure for cancer. I tell you what, if you want the biggest secret on earth and you want to hide it, put it on your website and say what the secret is. <laughs> like right <laughs> on your website. Because <laughs> yeah. that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's excellent. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It really is amazing. And um, I hope um, I'm going to make this, with your permission, I'll go ahead and I'll edit this up and I'll make it available to you um, mm-hmm. to, to make sure that it uh, says what you want it to say. And then I will um, make it available um, now and going forward to the folks that I support. And hopefully it will turn into some um, good connections for you and some good connections for them. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. It was a pleasure. I very much enjoyed it. It was really wonderful. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Okay. Take care, man. Bye. Okay, bye.